Welcome to Traif, a debatably Jewish podcast. So welcome back to the show. We've uh, been on a bit of a break over the last month. You know what we've never done, actually, David? What? what? We've never formally introduced ourselves. What do you mean formally introduced ourselves? Said that my name is Sam and your name is David, and we host the show. Well, my name is David. I'm Sam. And we both uh, make the Trafe podcast happen. That's true. I just thought that for any new listeners or anyone who kind of doesn't have any background on this on this podcast... We gave him a, a little introduction. So, Sam, how was your break? David, it went pretty well. I think there's actually some things in the work for the show that might be interesting to just mention off the top. We are now collaborating in some capacity with a website called Jewschool.com. Jewschool, J-E-W-S-C-H-O-O-L. Yeah, thanks for the spelling. If you're not familiar with the website, if you haven't visited before, I would highly encourage you to check it out for leftist and progressive Jewish voices. And yeah, so we're going to be putting up our show... And hopefully writing a couple articles when we get a chance, mm-hmm. which is kind of exciting. Yeah. And at the same time that we've started this new collaboration with Jew School, we've also started working with some people who have had various different story ideas related to some of the themes and topics that we talk about on the Trave Podcast. Uh, so if you have any ideas similar to this, please get in touch, travepodcast at gmail.com, and we can talk about featuring your story on a new episode of Trave. Yeah. Big times at Trave headquarters. So, Sam, I know over the break, there are a lot of different things that were happening on the internet that you were really excited about, but we didn't really have a chance to talk about because we didn't have the show going on. Do you, are there any things that you wanted to do, like a brief recap? David, I thought you would never ask. So, in the fall, we promised that we wouldn't delve too far deeply into election stuff. The Canadian election is over. Justin Trudeau's on a vacation in the Caribbean at the moment. And the American one is kind of a trap. It's a it's a very quick media cycle. There's all these hot takes all the time. There's just a lot of news happening in the U.S. around the political shenanigans that are taking place. But I think there were a few standout things for me in the last two or three weeks that bear noting. First off, comrade Bernard Sanders decided to post a Christmas message wishing all Americans a very happy Christmas, which let me down as someone who enjoys the kind of questionably jewish nature of bernard's uh political campaign so i guess for you now all that's left of bernie sanders is the hollowed out shell of his watered down socialist politics and no more of the jewish novelty that once existed for you correct so sorry what were some of the other the other things though have you been on um amazon germany this week Amazon Germany? Amazon Germany. What is Amazon Germany? Guess what book sold out for the first time in 70 years? Oh, yeah. I heard they republished Mein Kampf. They did republish Mein Kampf. But wasn't there a ban on buying it in Germany? So there's a ban on printing it and selling it, and that law has expired. Okay. There was some fanfare about German politics politicking around the publication of the book, and they decided to publish it annotated. So it's originally five or 600 pages. It's now 2,000. And they have pre-sold how many thousand copies, do you think, David? 6,000. 14,000. That's a lot. That's a lot of mine comps. So wait, could you buy it before, like if you lived in Germany, could you just buy it through Amazon America? Probably. So why do you think so many people were just not buying it until now? My assumption is that there's a, there's a probably a fair amount of collector type situation. People want the annotated version. So you think that the reason that 14,000 people are buying Mein Kampf in Germany right now is because they want to collect the new edition? 
I think that that probably plays a role. Because I think if you love Hitler enough, if, if you're like committed enough to that man's ideology in some capacity, you'd probably have read the book already, right? Like, why would you buy it again? Yeah, maybe you haven't read it before. Yeah, but if you're the kind of person who would fall into that world, you probably would have access to illegal channels of Mein Kampf. I mean, what occurs, have you heard of a PDF? I mean, what occurs to me is like maybe a lot of the purchases for this are actually bulk purchases by bookstores who are presuming that there's going to be a certain amount of demand for this since it's been banned for so long. Trafe Podcast leaving you with many questions and no answers. Uh, any listeners in Germany, let us know. So anything, anything else happened over the break that we should know about? A bunch of things, but I think we, we got to move on. Okay. We, actually, we actually have a really good show today. Yeah, so today on the show, we have Karen Sofer-Sharon, who is a part of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, based out of New York, who's going to talk to us a bit about the Mizrahi Caucus that she's been a part of founding, and also about the anti-Islamophobia campaign that Jews for Racial and Economic Justice have been undertaking. We are also going to bring you the fourth installment of BDS Watch Watch, where we discuss the brand new hot topic amongst Zionist circles in North America, which is intersectionality. This is your episode of Trafe for the 10th of Shvat, 5776. And now it's time for BDS Watch Watch. So the kinds of media reading that we do is often boring. Um, it's the same <laughs> kind of information repackaged in a thousand different ways. True. And so whether you're reading the Jewish Daily Forward or the Jewish Telegraphic Agency or the Canadian Jewish News or listening on the internet to some radio, it feels like the major arguments that are put forward by the institutional Jewish community around Zionism and around Palestine are redundantly boring. So it's actually been kind of interesting in the last few weeks that it appears that the monolith that is the institutional Jewish community has actually chosen to shift course slightly. And this actually might be more than slightly, but only time will tell, as they say. It seems like there is an increased focus on the notion of intersectionality, whether or not the institution really understands what that word means or what that framework means. It appears that there's a pretty big shift towards recognizing or at least talking about forms of intersecting oppressions. Yeah, and for those who are unfamiliar with the term intersectionality or have had the unfortunate experience of only encountering it through these new Zionist writings on it, intersectionality was a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. Her writings have heavily influenced a lot of other radical left writers and thinkers over the past 25 years, and it's a concept that has become fairly incorporated into a lot of the thinking and the practice of radical left political work over that period of time. And, and so along with this decision to engage with intersectionality by figures within the Zionist movement, there's been a corresponding misunderstanding or intentional mischaracterization of what intersectionality actually is. As far as I'm concerned, the primary text for this uh, new political orientation from the institutional Jewish community was written by a fellow named Mark Yudoff, who is a major macher in the University of California school system. I think he's retired but he's been involved in universities in Minnesota and Texas. But he wrote this piece called BDS and Campus Politics, A Bad Romance. Now, I believe that that is a Lady Gaga reference. I am not sure. If anyone, David, do you know? I, I'm the wrong person to ask about this. Okay. Um, this continues in a long tradition of institutional Jewish community trying to connect with the youth in a very dated way. But I might be wrong. David, do you want to give the listeners a brief overview of the piece itself? So the strategy that it outlines is just talking about responding to BDS in the context of what they've identified as the presence of all these progressive or leftist coalitions that it tends to be a part of on campuses, 
there's a quote in it. It says, if you're opposed to homophobia, if you're concerned about events in Ferguson, if you favor a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, the party line is that you should also perceive Israel as an illegitimate colonial settler nation. So their identification of the problem is not that an intersectional analysis is wrong, that there's any foundational problem with the concept of intersectionality. Their problem is intersectionality is bad strategically for our fight against BDS, and we need to somehow engage with that. This might be taking us a little bit off track, but I do think that it's important to note that such rhetoric from the institutional community is unfathomable five or 10 years ago. Yeah, and in the piece, what they're encouraging Zionist organizations to increasingly do is build coalitions. They're saying that they should be emphasizing democracy and civil rights and tolerance and equality. They're talking about that a crucial part of this work should be what they call repairing relationships between Jewish students and other groups, especially communities of color. So this is clearly a strategy not necessarily to fight the intersectional analysis, but to participate in the discourse of intersectionality toward incorporating Zionism as a legitimate project. As is often the case, directives coming from certain American groups have landed in Canada. And the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, or CJA, which I think it's important to note is the first time I've ever mentioned the full name without being prompted by David. Yeah, thanks, Sam. No problem. Sija reposted the Yudof article on their website. Yeah, and, and, and this is pretty important, actually, because the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs usually represents a fairly far-right version of Zionist advocacy on campus. So the fact that they're endorsing this strategic vision, I think, is going to lead to a lot of different tactics materializing on campuses in Canada. Because we've seen this before, right? Like there have been instances of Zionist groups trying to mobilize with certain leftist causes in the last 10 or 15 years, but it definitely hasn't been representative of the mainstream institutional community. Yeah, and it definitely hasn't been part of a consistent, coherent campaign. I think there are these one-offs that would happen, but they're always kind of on the side. And this is representing a new strategic vision that could easily overtake the narrative of how Zionist advocacy is happening. And since the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs have effectively endorsed this, they've been pushing these internet advertisements that say, do you care about social justice? So do we. And if you click on the link, it brings you to a tab on their page that just is entitled Social Justice and has a collection of what seems like anything they could think of that they were already doing that had to do with social justice to show people that they're really all about this social justice push. And since this has come out, we've actually already seen some movement on this. We have. In early January, some macher from the Jewish Council for Public Affairs wrote this piece that got circulated via the Jewish Telegraphic Agency through the Forward, the Jewish Week, the Daily Beast, and Haaretz. So it got kind of wide circulation that was titled, The Anti-Israel Trend You've Never Heard Of. So it was positioned as this hot take about intersectionality and how it affects BDS Yeah, like uh, after reading the piece, it seemed to me like this is actually the best example of the intentional misunderstandings or mischaracterizations of intersectionality that are going on in the discussion here. Yeah, uh, Bernstein in this piece writes about how intersectionality is a community relations strategy. Like these people don't understand what they're writing about, but they understand that they've got the directive from up high and need to start negotiating with it, right? And so there's this kind of like incredulous perspective where they're like, how could you compare what's going on in Palestine to other forms of inequality and oppression? The example that he gives in his piece talks about 
uh, sexual violence and how people in at Columbia or organizers in Columbia have drawn alliances around what uh, Bernstein perceives to be preposterously different things, but it just shows that this guy doesn't really get what's going on. The piece ends on a note that is pretty telling, where he says, we may not be able to discredit intersectionality with Israel across the board, but we can limit its reach. Mm. Very clear what's going on here. Yeah, no, that's actually very well put. And we've actually seen some of the first efforts at putting this into practice on campuses at the University in Toronto, the uh, Ontario Institute of Studies and Education, or OISE a place that has a reputation historically of rooting a lot of its education in social justice, on December 8th saw the launch of a new project led by Karen Mock, the former national director for B'nai B'rith of the League for Human Rights, and now a spokesperson for JSpace, a Zionist group, of the Anti-Semitism and Holocaust Studies Project, Enhancing Social Justice, Anti-Racist, and Anti-Oppression Education. Amen. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mouthful. She actually said that there there is a quote where she said, there are faculty who identify people like us as Zionists and say we are therefore not credible in the anti-oppression world. So this is what we're doing to try to counter that. And it's a new project to, according to Jody Shupak of the Canadian Jewish News, attempt to counter academic anti-Zionism on campus at U of T. This is definitely something that is used by supporters of the state of Israel to characterize what's taking place on campuses in North America. I tend to disagree with that assessment. Yeah, so the the idea behind the project is that Karen Mock and the people who are participating in this in this new organization are saying that at OISE specifically, but on campuses more generally, there has been an effort to remove discussions and remove texts that talk about anti-Semitism, or specifically, she said in her Canadian Jewish News article, anti-Semitism as a prototype of racism in lieu of discussions more heavily rooted in people experiencing racialization today. And their takeaway from this is that this is coming from an anti-Zionist and ultimately anti-Semitic place that is trying to erase all conversation of anti-Semitism out of a hatred for Jewish people. Whereas it is more likely a more reasoned assessment or analysis of what is taking place in white supremacist settler colonial North America today. Yeah, and at the launch, they invited all of the social justice education departments, and apparently none of them came. Uh, but Karen Mock was... What's uh, like, David? Do you think the food was bad? Like, what do you... Because, I mean, academics... I was actually pretty impressed that none of them came, to be honest, because after I heard about this project, my immediate conclusion was, oh, it's, it's being presented in such a liberal way. They're saying that all we need is to have more education about the history of anti-Semitism, which, you know, it's fine to have an education about anti-Semitism. That should be on campuses. But the fact that the faculty clearly understood what this was actually representing and what this was actually trying to do was very encouraging to me. But Karen Mock was unfazed by this and said following the launch that she feels like the purpose of this is actually to create a network on campuses of people who are interested in doing this work. And she feels like that was actually served by this launch and she feels is actually growing. What, what this feels like is, and this is echoed through the Udoff stuff and the Bernstein article, and generally this kind of strategic approach as well, is a conflating of so many different factors, right? Like maybe you're being alienated because you are holding an untenable worldview, right? Like that is never considered as a possibility. It is that we are being marginalized, we're being oppressed. It's not the real possibility that maybe there is a social shift as far as support for settler colonialism in Palestine, right? Mm. Like that's never engaged with. 
Yeah, and I, and and also like we should say we're talking about this new push. There's still the other push. Like yeah. there's still the version of Israel advocacy that says that BDS is Nazi Germany. In fact, in the Canadian Jewish News just yesterday, it was on the front page of the website. That was a reckless article. We like CJN Yoni Goldstein. This is getting a little much. Yeah, we wouldn't recommend that anyone actually go read this, but we can just say that there is a picture of Nazi Germany, and the entire article was just saying that the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement was just a repeat of Nazi Germany. They didn't even make an argument. They just put a picture, said BDS in the headline, and then just wrote about Germany. But uh, but anyhow, I feel like we could rant about this for a very long time. Uh, I don't want to give it that much time on the podcast. You're on watch, Canadian Jewish News. But this new push has a lot of possibility, I think, to become the defining characteristic of Zionist advocacy on campus over the next several years. <laughs> Save away your gout. Tear down that poster of Judah Maccabee. It's time for Shkoyach. So you've reached the most popular segment of the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa David, you're not going to explain what is going to happen now? Well, we each give a shkoyach. That is true. Yeah, people are used to it now. All three people who listen? Yeah, I think they got it. Yeah. All right, so what is your shkoyach for the day? So my shkoyach this week uh, is going out to two people. The first is Khaled Muammar, uh, the former president of the Canadian Arab Federation, and also Dan Freeman Malloy. <laughs> Wait, Dan Freeman Malloy? Yeah. Like the person we both know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's going out to the two of them. Hey, Dan. Uh, and uh, the reason is of both of their responses to a December 20th newspaper article that the Toronto Star published called The Toronto Man Who Saved Nazareth. Wow, I entirely missed that one. Well, I, I assume you're not as much of an avid reader of the Toronto Star as I am. No, I am not prone to read pieces that come from Mordor. Uh, and unfortunately, in this circumstance, you're right. Uh, they put out this 2,500-word piece this guy i don't know you know mitch potter he's 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 kind of like uh, an old zionist like he's written a lot of articles over the years but anyway he wrote this article that was this giant praise of a guy named ben dunkelman <laughs> who he referred to as the a gentle giant of a man who uh he sounds like a gentle giant yeah so the story is he went from Toronto to Palestine in 48 to fight with the Haganah. Uh, yeah. And the reason that he's getting all this praise from Mitch Potter in this article is because, according to this narrative, he refused orders to purge the population of Nazareth in 48 when his battalion was in charge of displacing people from territory in the Galilee. Wow. And so this writer is praising this historical individual for not participating in displacement and forms of ethnic cleansing. Exactly. Most of the narrative of the piece is celebrating what Mitch Potter sometimes implicitly and sometimes explicitly describes as sort of Canadian values oh. in his work in Palestine. Okay. And it, it, it's a huge fluff piece. Like he talks with his son, he talks with his wife, they all talk about how he was a a loving person. It's kind of how fluff pieces go. Yeah. And so we get a lot of that. And uh, Potter goes on, he says he won no medals for refusing to molest civilians, but, and that's why it was so much more honorable. Anyway, so it was this, it was this weird piece that I noticed. Noted, uh, but where, where is Dan Freemalloy coming to all this? So Dan being the, uh, you know, the academic he is around this issue, wrote a response to the star shortly after, along with Khaled Muammar, who are both familiar with the brigade that he was in command of. Just to be clear, they wrote different pieces. Yeah, they wrote okay. different responses to the star, neither of which were published. One can only imagine that they wouldn't be published. But 
like I was saying before, like both of them are familiar with the brigade that he commanded. It's the 7th Armored Brigade of the IDF. And it's a brigade that's mentioned by both Palestinian and Israeli sources as having massacred civilians in several different villages. So not only was this piece relying on certain dangerous settler colonial liberal values of Canada, but it also was wrong. Well, it wasn't wrong in the sense that he did refuse to follow the orders in the village of Nazareth. Okay. But what it's wrong about is completely erasing the fact that in all the other villages that he was assigned to, that the 7th mm-hmm. Battalion did massacre civilians and did purge the populations. And part of what Dan was pointing out in his piece is that the villages that they are documented as having massacred civilians in, of having displaced the populations from, are all uh, Muslim-majority villages. And the one that he spared was Christian. So it's clear that he was principled in his position against expelling civilians from Christian villages, but had no such qualms with doing them from Muslim ones. So, you know, Dan wrote the star, Khaled wrote the star, the star published neither of their responses. And so the reason that I know about this is because Dan published a longer response on his own website. He has a blog called Notes and Hypocrisy uh, that you can visit. We'll have in the show notes where you can actually read a detailed breakdown of some of the history of the 7th Armored Brigade and what actually happened under Ben Dunkelman's command. Friend of the show, Dan Freeman Malloy, it's your first square. Yeah, so definitely a very intense history, uh, one that's, I think, really important for people to be aware of, and unfortunately not one that the Toronto Star was willing to be clear about, but thankfully there was, through Dan and Khaled, a bit more clarity uh, put online for people. Uh, So Sam, what's your Shkoyach for the week? Given that we've been on hiatus for the last couple of weeks, the Shkoyach that I am going to give today is for something that took place in early December around Hanukkah. It was a series of actions organized by a bunch of groups, primarily by Jewish Voice for Peace, but also a group called Jews Against Islamophobia in New York City and some kind of network against Islamophobia. There are a bunch of groups. I apologize in advance if anyone's listening. It's a melange of different groups. Ultimately, it was a series of actions or a call for actions uh, during the eight days of Hanukkah to highlight uh, Islamophobia and anti-Muslim structural realities in the United States. So what did they, what did they do to do that? So from an outside perspective, there's a website, jvp.org slash network against Islamophobia. And on it was this kind of like organizing space for where you had images and call outs and kind of various messaging where they were asking different chapters of JVP entities to organize actions. So what kind of actions came out of that? Yeah, the there was, I mean, it kind of varied across cities. There are a bunch of pictures all over the internet, but Milwaukee had an action that was opposing a JNF-style event with Scott Walker in attendance. Uh. The Chicago JVP chapter was engaging with a function organized by the Jewish United Fund, condemning the relationship between the institutional community in Chicago and the Chicago police. Oh, that's good. Yeah, there there were actions in Miami, there were actions in Rhode Island, New York, Boston, like your run-of-the-mill big American cities. So it was very like local-based organizing style. They said that there was more than 15 cities, hundreds of organizers... So one thing, one thing that I found particularly interesting in the kind of imagery and iconography that the JVP used in this organizing was the phrase rekindling our commitment to justice and with the image of a menorah and each arm represented a different kind of entity that they were looking to engage with. Yeah, that's, that's funny because I, I don't know if you got this email too, but Moish, uh, Moish, who we had on our Christmas episode, if anyone listened to that one, actually sent me this email with a scan of an old, I think it was from an old Yiddish newspaper, and it had a picture of 
uh, a Jewish labor militant lighting a, a tailor. Oh, a tailor lighting a Hanukkah, and on each arm of the Hanukkah was written a different aspect of, I think, the labor struggle, right? Yes, yeah, so you had like organize, fair pay, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that was exactly my first thought when I saw the kind of propaganda coming from the JVP around this. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting someone was paying tribute to it or inadvertently. Yeah, drawing on that history. Yeah. But no, I think generally, Shkoyach goes to the Network Against Islamophobia of the JVP. It seems like very important work to be happening amongst Jewish communities, both amongst Jews and non-Jews when it comes to anti-Arab, anti-Muslim uh, realities that pervade in North American society. Well, the, the first example that you were talking about, you said it was against the JNF hosting Scott Walker. Like, how did that overlap with uh, anti-Arab or anti-Muslim racism? So it's pretty broad. I actually don't have the specifics of that action, mm-hmm. but they incorporated things like hate speech and hate crimes, state surveillance, state profiling, structural anti-blackness, anti-Arab racism and Islamophobia, um, an end to racist policing. So it, it kind of was a pretty expansive list. I assume that there would be a range of things that could be uh, levied against the governor of Wisconsin, I believe he is still. He's sitting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's no shortage of ways that he interacts with those things. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it was generally a good initiative um, brought on by a somewhat institutional leftist organization in North America. Man, that's great. Yeah. Well, Shkoyach to JVP and all the Jewish organizations that participated there. Karen Sofer Sharon is a Mizrahi organizer, educator, and youth worker from Queens via Israel, via Iraq. She's a member leader of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, where she has been building the organization's first Mizrahi caucus and working to center the leadership of Jews of color, Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews in broader movements for justice. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks so much for talking to us today. Um, we're, we're just hoping to start off the conversation, if you could tell us a bit about the origin of the Mizrahi Caucus at JFREDGE, uh, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, and what it's uh, getting up to today. Sure. Um, so the Mizrahi Caucus is a collective of leftist Jews in New York who identify as Mizrahi or Sephardic. So Mizrahi Jews are Jews who, for over 2,500 years, were indigenous to parts of the Middle East, North Africa. Asia and the Balkans, and Sephardic Jews are Jews who settled there, having originated from Spain after the expulsion in 1492. And so many of us have gotten together to build power and reshape the analysis of our Jewish organization because we've all we've all felt left out of um, a vision for justice in Jewish communities that has predominantly been led by white Ashkenazi Jews. And uh, how, how did you all get together at JFREDGE to create the caucus? Did it come out of a specific context within the organization itself? 
it took some kick-ass base building, I have to say. I mean, we really had to find each other. Um, I I was part of an organizing fellowship a couple of years back and was lucky enough to get really solid support in learning about my family history. So after really digging into my family history, I was able to piece together my own family's history of displacement and the cultural erasure that they had experienced historically and the erasure that I had experienced going to Jewish day school and being part of, you know, Jewish camps and what I was actually feeling in a leftist Jewish organization, even though I shared the politics of the people that I was organizing with. And so it took, it took a lot of intentional outreach and um, membership recruitment to try and find those other Jews in New York who had similar backgrounds with me, but didn't necessarily identify as Mizrahi and had been, you know, going around in circles like I had in predominantly Ashkenazi spaces, not really knowing what it was exactly that didn't feel right and why we felt on the outside of something. And once we once we got together, we we all really felt that it was so imperative to find other people in New York and to to look into our history together. So much of the work that we've been doing has been a lot of internal political education because none of us grew up learning our history. We've only learned, you know, capital J, capital H Jewish history, which is all Ashkenazi history. So we've had to really do that work on our own and have been able to see how that all of that history being left out of the dominant Jewish narrative has been so strategic and systemic. And that's why our voices have been left out of the conversation. So in doing a lot of that consciousness raising and reclamation of Mizrahi history, I imagine there's a lot that has to do with reconciling Arab and Jewish identity together. You've written about the Zionist expectation of Jewish identity overriding Arab identity with Mizrahi Jews. And I was just wondering what the resistance to that expectation looks like within the context of Jewish community. It's a really it's a really loaded question because historically Jews and Arabs were not considered enemies. Although in our current context, I don't know of any Jew who hasn't been taught that they are enemies. And so, you know, especially especially within the context of Jewish education, the history that's taught is that Jews and Jews and Arabs or Jews and Muslims have been perpetual enemies. And especially with the establishment of the state of Israel, not only were Mizrahi Jews displaced as a result of the establishment of the state of Israel and then practically imported as migrant labor into settlements and into development towns and into transit camps, the concept of the Arab Jew became impossible within within the dominant narrative that, that Zionism proposed and, and continues to propose, because Arabs are the enemy of Zionism. And so the Arab Jew needs to be rehabilitated, needs to be recuperated, needs to be, needs to become Ashkenazi, needs to become Israeli. So, you know, much of my family's story and the, fam- and, and the story of Mizrahi Jews, especially those who um, were displaced and then moved to Israel and Palestine, is this violent erasure of the parts of themselves that are Arab. And so even though some of that culture continues today and is maintained through music and through food and um, 
and through language, although Arabic is a dying language among Arab Jews today, so much of so much of our culture dating back thousands of years has has made us feel ashamed and uh, has been has become a target of bullying and of violence. And so, you know, in order in order to actually survive and, and I'm talking specifically in this moment about living in a place like Israel as an Arab Jew. In order to survive, you have to um, you have to ignore the parts of yourself that are Arab. You have to turn them off. You have to erase them in order to feel normal, in order to feel like you're a part of a community. And that has effects globally. And so even though I'm not someone who was raised in Israel-Palestine, my parents are immigrants from there. My mother is an Iraqi Jew, and she grew up in an environment where she was taught that being an Arab is, is something she should be ashamed of. And she's not necessarily aware of all of all of those instances throughout her childhood, again, because so much of it was systemic, even though it played out in her social group, in her school, in her neighborhood. But those things, those things end up um, translating and and um, traveling across borders. And so for our group now, we're really dealing with those effects because we are Israeli Jews who whose families have this incredibly rich history. And not only has that history been lost, but we've internalized such a deep sense of shame and otherness and inferiority that we've only begun to identify. It's not, especially because so many of us grew up, we grew up in, in Arab homes and in Arab families, but in communities and in schools and organizations that didn't necessarily reflect that culture or background, um, we've really internalized this idea that Arab Jews are are backward or that they are more conservative than Ashkenazi Jews who are more radical or who are more leftist or who have a have a, a leftist history in this country, even though Mizrahi Jews have a long leftist history that we just haven't we haven't had a chance to learn about. Yeah, no, just as a direct response, um, in Montreal, we often talk about the socialist or the, or the anarchist Ashkenaz-descended Jews, and a lot of the Moroccan Jews who came in the 60s and 70s were at the forefront of movements for social change, and that part of mm-hmm. the leftist radical history is not engaged with as much as the kind of workman circles and leftist papers that were out in the early 1900s. Um, right. Just reflecting on that a little bit, but I was wondering... About a month ago, you wrote a piece in Tikkun Daily titled For Many Jews, Anti-Arab Racism Hits Home, where you started and ended the piece talking about the context in the U.S. right now of anti-Arab racism and Islamophobia and xenophobia and the ways that it was significant for the Jewish community to situate itself in response, in, in relation to that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit more. Sure. I mean, of course... Of course, Donald Trump's vitriol and hatred is nothing new, and it's nothing that's personal to him. The, the Islamophobia and xenophobia and anti-Arab racism flare up that we're seeing in New York and across the country is, is, has been nascent. And so what I was attempting to do in, in my piece was 
to, to thank the, the Jews that I know who have spoken out against this rise in Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism, um, who drew really powerful connections between um, the experience of Ashkenazi Jews in Nazi Germany and Nazi-occupied territories and using the call of Jewish responsibility to justice, never again, those kinds of things. And so what, what I was trying to do was, was say, yes, that, and also Jews are Arabs. And so this isn't, we don't need to show up against Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism because we are Jews who want to show up in solidarity with our Arab Muslim neighbors. We want to show up for this issue because it also affects us. And the fact that so many Ashkenazi Jews, white Ashkenazi Jews, don't necessarily see or understand that anti-Arab racism is not something outside of our community. It's something that is alive and well within our community. And the fact that Arab Jews are so invisible is such a clear result of that. So can you talk about the organizing that Jayford has done in New York in the fight against Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism? So Jayfridge started doing anti-Islamophobia work in earnest after 9-11, and much of the work that we've done over the past 10 to 15 years has been consistently showing up at rallies and at press conferences and making sure that a Jewish presence is there whenever um, whenever something Islamophobic or anti-Arab racist happens in our city. And so Jayfridge, in coalition with Jewish Voice for Peace and with Jews Say No, has really prioritized working in partnership with other Jewish organizations to fight Islamophobia and, and anti-Arab racism in New York because we know that it's not something that, that we can do without our Jewish partners. And so in, in the last three years, a big part of what our organization's activism has been in terms of Islamophobia work has actually been through a different campaign, through our police accountability campaign, and in our effort to pass the Community Safety Act, which was actually passed in 2014. And so we were really thinking about, you know, not just about stop and frisk and how Jews can can show up to um to pressure the NYPD to change its policies and to end stop and frisk, but also to really to really put pressure on the NYPD to to stop surveilling Muslim communities. And so, you know, in in an effort of embodying, you know, what we call radical neighborliness, we're we're thinking about, you know, what are some concrete ways that we can show up for our Muslim neighbors in ways that promote safety and community safety and accountability without relying or empowering the police. And we're constantly thinking about that question. And so we've been, we've been really lucky to work with, through Communities United for Police Reform as the wider coalition, work with groups like the Arab American Association of New York or Desi's Rising Up and Moving, Muslim Community Network, Council for American Muslim, American Islamic Relations, sorry, all of those organizations have been working together in New York to make sure that we hold the NYPD accountable. And so in the past 15 or so years, that's been the way that JFridge, as, you know, historically as a, a white Ashkenazi organization, has 
shown up in an effort to to end Islamophobia, stop and frisk, and Muslim surveillance in New York. And so what we're thinking about now is, you know, how can we really work to center the leadership of of the Jews of color and of Sephardian Israeli Jews in this work? Because we've already figured out that if Jews want to show up to end stop and frisk and if Jews want to show up in the Black Lives Matter movement, black Jews need to be leading that struggle. It can't be white Jews. So if we want to show up in the movement to end Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism, Arab Jews also need to be at the center of that struggle because we can actually speak to the experience of anti-Arab racism that we're dealing with, even if our experience could be could be very different, especially in New York, um, and especially because many of us as exactly Jews don't walk around with the job. And so we don't experience the same targeting and violence that our Arab sisters experience. So just thinking about that difference that you're talking about between the historical experience of European Jews and the historical experience of Arab Jews, uh, in September, I know the State of Israel launched this big PR campaign where they were comparing the expulsion of Palestinians from Palestine to that of Arab Jews who left for Israel in the two decades following the state's establishment. Um, and it's been mm-hmm. it's been taking root a lot. At least here, the institutional Jewish community have been pushing this narrative pretty hard. And I imagine this mm-hmm. puts uh, the Mizrahi community in a very uncomfortable situation in relationship to Palestine solidarity. Yeah. You know, I, I, I heard about that. And I think you're right. This this does put Mizrahi Jews in a really difficult position. Although historically, Mizrahi Jews has always been in not always, but has generally been in a difficult position because, sure, we want we want our displacement to be recognized, of course. Um, but even though this this year was also the first year that the Israeli government um, had a, a day of remembrance or a day of commemoration for for the displacement of Mizrahi Jews. And even when, when those things are happening, it's, it, it's always in service of the Zionist project. And so our, our displacement is actually being used to boost and to prop, to prop up the theory of Zionism, which is that Arab Jews were saved by Zionism and by the state of Israel, and that they were kicked out and expelled from their Arab homeland. And that's a really... That's a really um, specific view of what happened in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. That um, there's definitely history that Mizrahi communities, especially in America, have been fed, but is largely untrue. And so, whenever whenever Mizrahi Jews are referred to as refugees, I I get uncomfortable because you can't you can't refer to a Mizrahi Jew as a refugee without without erasing the plight of Palestinians. Like you can't, you, you need to talk about the experience of Mizrahi Jews in terms of displacement that is incredibly complex. And there's not, there is not one narrative that can be applied to one Mizrahi community and the next. And so, you know, the story that the state of Israel will say is Jews were, um, Jews experienced anti-Semitism in their home countries and the Arab governments kicked them out and the place that took them in was Israel. Like that's the story they will tell. And so the reason why Jews left varies from place to place. And Zionism played a really large role in that. And and especially, you know, particularly a Zionism that was 
created and driven by Ashkenazi Jews, particularly German Jews who wanted to create, who, who you know, because of their internalized anti, anti-Semitism, <laughs> wanted, to, wanted to be as European as possible and wanted to create, you know, a Western European country in the middle of the Middle East. And that had ripple effects for Jews living in the Arab world for, for decades because the state of Israel had a significant and intentional role in creating a hostile environment for Jews living outside of Eastern and Western Europe and really, really negotiated with different Arab governments to make it possible for, for a migrant population who could, who could take on a lot of the manual labor to, to build up this new country. Karen, thanks so much for talking with us today. Before you wrap up, if there are people who are listening in New York and want to get involved, how can they get in touch with the uh, Mizrahi Caucus of JFREDGE? Well, I guess I won't give my personal email email out on radio, but um, you can look on the JFREDGE website, jfreg.org, and there should be a link there to, to sign up and get in touch with some of us. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me. So that was our interview with Karen Sofer Sharon. And uh, we thought that we'd extend uh, some resources for people who, like us, are European descended white Jews and are interested in engaging with some of the questions raised by Karen in the interview. And so all of these suggestions will be included in our show notes. So if you go to the show notes, uh, you'll see a list of links at the bottom that you can click on to view all these things. Yeah, so to begin with, there are a few giants in this realm, at least academically, the first being Ella Shohat. I would also encourage people to read Moshe Behar and Sami Shalom Shitrit. So those are three writers who will keep you busy for a solid amount of time. And on the topic between the relationship between Eastern European descended Jews and whiteness, uh, there's a book called How Jews Became White Folks by Karen Brodkin that I'd also recommend in starting to think about those questions. Yeah, to change mediums, Kathy Wazana, who's a Toronto-based filmmaker, wrote a film about uh, Moroccan Jewish identity and its relationship to uh, Zionism. It's called They Were Promised the Sea. For people who are interested in thinking in more detail about the realities of the dominance of Ashkenazi Jewish culture within Jewish communities in North America, we'd highly recommend the Jewish Multiracial Network website. They have a resources tab that has quite a few uh, relevant readings and activities regarding this. And so this is a topic for another podcast, but we both believe that this is important homework for European descended Jews. I think that folks who identify themselves on the left in some capacity who are of European Jewish descent really need to think critically about this on a regular basis. And the fact that you can't really engage in struggles for racial and economic justice until that is part of your analysis. No, definitely. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks again to Karen and see you in two weeks. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT, which is located in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, to Sack Syndrome for the music, to our social media director, Kira Page, and to Dan KT. If you're interested in listening to our bi-weekly podcast, you can find the show on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com.
No, Yudoff. Mark Yudoff. Mark Yudoff. Mark well, Yudoff. Mark Yudoff. Mark Yudoff. Is that what it is? Yukoff? I was so confident before. Mark Yudoff. Okay. 